morning. So, Lord, we do just come before you, God. We thank you for your word. And, Lord, we know there's power in the scriptures, Lord. It's sharper than any two-edged sword dividing the intents of the hearts and revealing where we're at, God. And we pray that that would happen this morning. Lord, that as the word goes forth, that it would reveal the areas of our hearts that need repentance. And, Lord, that it would also affirm the areas of our, of our hearts that we need to continue to strengthen and grow in, Lord. So we just pray that you would... <coughs> Bless this time, and God, would you speak so loud and clearly. Lord, may we be the most impactful Christians in our communities, Lord. In Jesus' precious name, amen. <clears throat> By a show of hands, how many of you have read the book Jesus Freaks by DC Talk? How many of you guys have read that book? Any, any of you guys around here? Only like four or five? Really? No one else? For real? Okay, you have to order that now. You can go half.com and get it for like five bucks, I promise. It's really cool. Anyhow, it's a book about ins uh, inspiring stories about Christians who had suffered persecutions, uh, persecution excuse me, in countries where the gospel is not allowed and how they've shined for the faith immensely. And one of the stories I'd like to read to you is out of Russia in the 1970s. It's entitled Smiling at Her Torturer. It's... Luba, and the last name is beyond me because it's very Russian, uh, but the story goes as such. Enough is enough, Luba said to herself. I will not receive the blows with meekness anymore. Tonight, if they begin again, I will tell the guard to his face that he is a criminal. Luba, arrested for her faith by the Russian communists, was kept in solitary cells, starved and beaten. Still, she had not denied Jesus or revealed the names of other believers. As so many others, she had patiently suffered for the sake of the gospel. She promised herself that tonight would be different. But that night, when the guard insulted her with foul words and was just about to start beating her, she somehow saw him differently. She noticed for the first time that he was as tired of beating her as she was of being beaten. She was worn out from lack of sleep, and so was he. He was as desperate over not getting any information from her as she was about suffering for refusing to betray her friends. A voice told her, he is so much like you. You are both caught in the same dilemma of life. Stalin, the chief communist dictator, killed thousands of God's children, but he also killed 10,000 officers of his own secret police. Three successive heads of the police, Yagoda, Yezhov and Berea were shot by their comrades, just like the Christians they had persecuted. You and your torturers passed through the same veil of tears. Luba looked up at the guard who had already lifted his whip to beat her. She smiled. Stunned, he asked, why do you smile? She replied, I don't see you the way a mirror would show you right now. I see you as you surely once were, a beautiful, innocent child. We are the same age. We might have been playmates. I see you too as I hope you will be. There was once a persecutor worse than you named Saul of Tarsus. He became an apostle and a saint. The torturer put down his whip. She continued, what burden so weighs on you that it drives you to the madness of beating a person who has done no harm to you? He had no answer. The torturer left that day a changed man. 
Guys, the love, obedience, and compassion of Luba is what really separates the men from the boys, and it also separates those who will enter the hall of faith from the average churchgoer. This morning, as we turn to the book of Colossians chapter 2, Paul, who is a prisoner of the gospel as well, I believe is going to give us a great key that will make you and I a very impactful believer. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2. And just to catch you up with the book of Colossians, Colossians was written by Paul. That's evidence there in chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. In today's day and age, when we write letters, we write the whole letter and put sincerely, Paul the Apostle. Well, what they did in that day and age is to make sure there was no confusion on who was writing that letter, they would start off by saying, hey, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then would put the body of their letter together. It's believed that Paul wrote this letter from prison. That's more evidenced in the book of Philippians, where he refers to being in chains for the gospel. Uh, but historical facts seem to indicate that he probably wrote this from a prison cell as well. What's interesting about this epistle is Paul, generally speaking, wrote most of his epistles to more important cities. So, for example, the book of Romans was written to the people of Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, and Philippi. These were more important cities on the world scene. Colossae was not an important city at all. It would be like if, you know, I picked up my pen and wrote to the church of Los Angeles and, you know, Minneapolis, Chicago, New York City, maybe Orlando, and I wrote them a strong, spirit-inspired, powerful letter. And then I picked up a pen and wrote to the church of Hopkins. You know what I mean? That's, and that's what Colossae is. It's not really, sorry, Sid. Um, <laughs> sorry to pick on your town. <laughs> But man, it's like picking up that pen and writing to that town that on the world scale has little or no effect. And what I like about that is that is telling us that the Holy Spirit cares about the cities that the world would say, man, these are important places. But God also cares about the places that we might chalk up and go, ah, you know, it's Hopkins or, oh, you know, it's just that tribe in the middle of Africa. I remember when I was in Uganda, we, we went on a little um, safari, and we pulled up to this town, or it wasn't even a town, it was just literally a neighborhood of huts that was right on the water, and all they did was fished, and they brought in the food, and then they ate the food, and that was kind of how their economy run there. It wasn't a, a world-impacting society, man. It, it probably didn't even make the main city of Kampala in terms of economics or any kind of impact. And yet God cares about those group of people so intimately. And that's what Colossians says is the Holy Spirit is inspiring Paul to go, hey, that church that's in that no-name city, write them, inspire them, impact them, change their lives with the message that I have inspired through you. And it reminds me of what 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27 says. It says, <coughs> But God has chosen the foolish things of this world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. And so, man, God cares about this church. He cares about these people and wants to invest in them through the life of the Apostle Paul. And really, the book of Colossians 
if there was one verse that would more or less summarize the book, I believe it's Colossians 1.27. And it says, To them God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And remember, with an early church, generally speaking, it was more of a Jewish community. So remember that in the Old Testament, it was only the high priest that would go into the Holy of Holies. And now this mind-blowing statement is being made here in verse 27, where he's saying, it's not about the high priest going into the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies is coming into you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so now whatever Paul is going to command after verse 27 for the rest of the book, now the commands and the standards of God are attainable, not because you're living them out in your own strength, but because Christ is living in and through you. And he also complements this point here in Romans 8, 11, where it says, but if or but since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So it goes on to be a little more specific. And he says, not only is it the spirit of Christ who dwells in you, but the same spirit that said, hey, Jesus, dead body, get up, conquer sin, conquer death, that Holy Spirit, that power is now in the believer who has received Jesus Christ into their life. And so now that we understand that mind-blowing truth, now any command of God, any sacrifice of fleshly desires, or going the extra mile for our brothers and sisters is achievable because of the power of God living in us. So the commands that we're going to hear about here in Colossians chapter 2 are now very doable because he's not asking you to do it. He's asking Christ in you to do it with you. So with that, let's begin in chapter 2, verse 1. <clears throat> it says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and as for many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So that's our section for this morning. Going back to verse 1, he says, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you, and for those in Laodicea, it was a city nearby Colossae, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh. He refers to, man, what a great conflict I have for you. That Greek word for conflict is the word agon, A-G-O-N. 
if you add a Y onto the Greek word, it's where we get our English word agony, agon, agony. Guys, Paul is going to agonize over the spiritual needs of those in Colossae and Laodicea. Guys, this agony or agon that Paul is referring to, it's not a sympathy that goes, oh man, well, you know, they have that problem. Well, you know, I just thumbs up, wish you the best. You know, I'll knock on wood for you. No, it's not that kind of agony. But man, it's an agony that really is compassion. It's a compassion that leads into action. And I want to ask you guys this morning rhetorical questions, heart-searching questions. Do you agonize over others? Do you have compassion for them? Do you agonize when others are hurting in the body of Christ? Because the scripture says that, man, when one part of the body is hurting, the whole body is hurting because we should be knit together in love. Do you agonize over lost souls? Does it, does it stir up your heart when family or coworkers or friends or whoever have never heard the gospel or have never received salvation through Jesus Christ, our Lord? Does your faith, does this agon cause you to share the gospel? Man, does it cause you to help the poor and meet the needs of others in the body of Christ? <laughs> Paul had a wonderful agon. It's not the, the agon of like Eeyore, oh, always me, my life is so hard. No, but it's, man, I see other people's needs and it breaks my heart in a compassionate, empathetic way that leads me to action to see how I can be a part of the solution in helping others in whatever their need might be. And so what Paul's going to do is as he rolls right into verse 2, he's going to address the needs that are agon him, that are agonizing him. Verse 2, it says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ. And so what Paul does is he says, hey, man, I agon for your spiritual needs. I, I agonize and I'm compassionate and empathetic, wanting to be a part of the solution. But here's three things I see that need to be taken care of in the church of Colossae. He says, number one, that our hearts may be encouraged. Number two, that the church would be knit together in love. Jesus prayed there in John 17 that the disciples would be one as I and the Father are one. So he's praying the heart of Jesus for the church of Colossae. And then it says, attaining to the riches of the knowledge of God. Can I just point out one thing that I love about what Paul is agonizing over? Notice what Paul agonizes over or what Paul values as important and worth striving for are spiritual-based needs. Notice they are spiritually based. And guys, throughout the New Testament, Paul was one that when he would be praying for churches or when he would be asking churches to pray for him, many times those prayer requests were spiritually focused. They were spiritually based. In Ephesians 6.19, it says, Pray for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So he says, hey, Church of Ephesus, I got one prayer request. I need boldness to share the gospel even more. 
Colossians 1.10 says, I do not cease to pray for you that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So he says, man, my prayer for you guys in Colossae is, man, that you would walk worthy of the Lord, please him, being fruitful and increasing in the knowledge of God's spiritual-based prayer request. Philippians 1.9, and this I pray, that your love abounds still more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And then in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. I'd like to ask you guys two rhetorical questions. Number one, because I don't always want to assume this is the case, but do you pray? Paul prays, and when he prays, they're spiritually-based prayers. He knows what's important for this life and the life to come, and so he prays accordingly. But if you are praying, what are you praying? What is the context of your prayers? What drives you to your knees? Man, is it the bigger bank account? Is it to get rid of singleness? Is it to get rid of your college debt? Is it to get rid of all these issues in your life that are really just fleshly desires? Or man, are you praying, God, give me boldness to preach the gospel. Give me a compassion that gets me outside of my comfort box and that would cause me to reach out and to mention the love of Jesus to someone even though that's not comfortable to me. Lord, would you cause me to grow in my love for the church? Would you help me to be more impactful as I disciple this person, that person, and the other? And I wonder if God were to give us the stats at the end of our life and he laid out the different categories of our prayer request, financial, securities, health, what, which, which percentage would be spiritually based? What percentage of our prayers are spiritually based? Now here's what I'll say. There's nothing wrong with praying for financial needs. There's nothing wrong for praying for health. Those things are okay, but if that is the majority of our focus, we're missing the point because the point is not for this life, but for the life to come. Man, the point is that we would be molded into the image of Jesus Christ, as it talks about in Romans chapter 8:29, that God's will is that we'd be molded into his image. Man, are we praying things like, man, to share the gospel so that more people are entering through heaven's gates? Or are we praying for those discipleship-based relationships so that for the people that I will never impact, man, Joe is going to impact in his community. And Eric is going to impact in the, the mail industry. And Dan's going to impact in the mortgage industry. Man, we would be discipling each other so that we are knowing how to go out and impact others where I myself am limited. I'm not at the mortgage office every day. I'm not at the mail place. I'm not wherever you guys are at. And man, are those, our, are those our prayer requests? Now, like I mentioned, non-spiritual prayer requests aren't wrong. I don't want to say that if you pray for your health, you know, you're in the spirit of the enemy or, you know, whatever, things like that. And in fact, many times, material-based prayer requests are necessary, especially when it comes to outreach, evangelism, and missions. Jesus there in Matthew 14 
It says that Jesus was moved with compassion. It's that idea of he agonized in his spirit for the multitude. He was moved with compassion, which led to action. It says for them and healed their sick. And, you know, the crowds also had followed him for days and were hungry. And so it says that he had fed the multitude. So are material-based prayer requests okay? Absolutely. I don't want to say they're not. In fact, James would emphasize this with outreach in chapter 2, verse 14. James says, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it is if it does not have works, is dead. Now remember that context is not with your salvation with God because there's no works required to be saved. He died for your sins. He supplied the grace. You connect the faith to God's grace and you're saved and that's it. The context to James is saying, hey, when you're describing about your faith to people and you say that you invest in zero people in any way, shape, or form, what evidence is that faith. That faith has zero evidence. And if you can pull out of your story bag and say, hey, man, I've invested in this person, and I've been on missions trips with these groups, and we write letters to that, those people, and we financially support those people, and we're reaching out in this part of our community, now in terms of the non-church world, there's evidence of genuine faith. And that's what James was emphasizing there. So non-spiritual prayer requests are important as well. But notice even in that context, it's for the benefit of others. And so prayers shouldn't be, don't treat God like your genie. God is not your genie just to give you your comforts and make life simple. Man, God is there so that we can get on his page and his game plan, not for him to get on your game plan. And if you're constantly asking him to do things for you every single time you come on your knees, then you're probably asking him to get on your game plan. And I would suggest that like Paul the Apostle, who has spiritual-based prayer requests, he is getting on the page of God and is in full surrender to him. And if it's, again, spiritual wisdom or physical-based needs that we're hoping to fulfill, um, Paul is going to give us the source of that here in verse 3. The end of verse 2 ends with Christ, verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he says, man, if you're looking for spiritual wisdom or physical needs, all those things are hidden in Jesus Christ. And the reason why verse 3 is super important to the context of the book of Colossians and what was going on there was because there was a group of guys called the Gnostics. And the Gnostics rolled around in the early church age, and there's different forms of it today. But more or less their message was, hey, the Bible's good. Yep, great book. Paul, awesome guy. But guess what? We have this hidden knowledge. We have this hidden wisdom that if you come to us, apart from the scriptures, we can get you more wise, and we can give you more greater understanding of life. And so that's why he says that, man, all... Uh, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. It's because he's combating that philosophy that was being taught in that day and age. Verse 4, <clears throat> it says, Now this I say, lest 
anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. So those first four, were, uh, yeah, about three or four words are important in verse four. He says, now this I say. So he said verses one through three to point out what he's going to point out in verse four. Lest anyone should deceive you. So his heart is to say, man, come back to Jesus, make Jesus the focal point, and if you're able to do that, you will not be deceived by the philosophies going around. Verse 5. For though I am absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. And so he says, man, I am with you in spirit. Well, what does that mean? You know, I'm with you in spirit. You know what I mean? That's kind of an odd phrase. And Paul is thinking about the Colossians. He's praying about the Colossians. And he's evidencing his prayers and his thinking toward them by penning a letter of instruction to them to encourage them in where their needs are at and helping to meet their spiritual needs by penning the book of Colossians. So, man, thinking and praying is how we can be with people in spirit, and then meeting people's needs is also a way to be with them in spirit. It's how we can be with missionaries in spirit. Now, not all of us can afford to go to Uganda, Africa, and be with Josh and Emma, or not all of us can afford to go to the missionary in India or China or, you know, Israel or whatever. We can't always go and be there with them physically like Paul had desired to be with many of the churches that he wrote. But we can be with them in spirit. How is that? Well, like I mentioned, we can be praying for them. Man, that's so huge. Because, man, when we pray for them, we're on our knees. We're coming before the throne. We're doing spiritual warfare on behalf of our missionaries that might be discouraged on the field. And so what we're doing is we're interceding on their behalf to God, saying, God, encourage our missionaries. God, give them strength to continue serving the people that they serve. Lord, provide them the provisions they need to take care of the orphans and the widows that they love on. I mean, one, one thing that's super obvious is financial support. Now, as I say that, I just want to emphasize, I don't want any of your money. This is not going to be one of those give me all your money kind of thing because I got this awesome ministry. <laughs> I don't want your money. But I think it is super, super important that we are financially invested in one missionary or another. And the reason is this. I don't know if you guys have heard in... Those of you who have served in the military can correct me on this. I don't know the exact number, but I heard the stat that for every fighter jet that goes up in the air and goes out on a mission, there's roughly 25 to 50 people that have to be on the ground. Anything from air control to you know, controlling the blocks on the ground for the thing and the, and, the, and the boats that they shoot off of to go off onto their missions. There's roughly 25 to 50 people for every one fighter jet that goes up in the air. Okay? And that's how it is with supporting missionaries. One or two might go out and say, hey, man, our focus is going to be evangelism or our focus is going to be rescuing orphans, or, or, or our mission is going to be human trafficking, and then we're going to rescue women out of that, teach them how to work, and share the gospel with them so that they can have jobs to be independent and the gospel for salvation. But guess what? A work like that is expensive. It, Josh and Emma, for example, they support 27, might I add, disabled orphans. 
So it's not just 27 like regular kids who just want to kick a ball and run around. A lot of them, like for example, they took in a kid who was seven pounds on his first birthday. Extreme malnourishment, uh, excuse me, ex extreme starvation. They took in a nine-year-old who was roughly 30 to 40 pounds on his ninth birthday. I mean, these are needs that are mind-blowing that we don't even understand. And when you have 27 orphans and then they have all these medical needs, and guess what? They need to bathe, they need to eat. I mean, it's, it's an expensive ministry to run. And so, man, we can gather together and be in spirit with them by saying, hey, you know what? I don't make much money, but you know what? I can send you 50 bucks. And, and then as a church, we can do more, and then we can help them stay on the ground because a lot of the reasons why missionaries come back to the States is because they're not helped in spirit by financial support. Social media is another way that we can be in spirit. It was something that wasn't available to Paul the Apostle. He couldn't jump on his Twitter account or his Facebook or Instagram and just check in on Emma's wall and see how they were doing. You know what I mean? But today we can be stirred up to pray by jumping on people's walls. Now Josh and Emma have a Facebook page and a, uh, uh, Instagram page. And you know, there's all these different ways that we can check in on them and then they can stir us to pray. And one of the final things I love doing, one of the ways I support missionaries is writing letters. You know, because a lot of people will just set up the auto deduction for the, you know, the financial support, but then they just kind of forget about them. And though, yes, financial needs are important, their emotional needs are very important as well. And so we can be meeting that by writing them letters, putting it in the mail, and having something to look forward to when they check their mail in Uganda, Africa. You know, one thing I'll say on the note of writing letters, and that's how Paul is showing his agon. I mean, he's showing that compassion by writing this letter to the church in Colossae. But uh, I've had our youth group write quite a few letters, and, and we've done quite a few to Josh and Emma. We mail them out every week because they check their mail once a week. So depending on how many kids and leaders were at youth group, they get letters for anywhere from, like, say, 7 to 15 straight weeks of just, hey, Josh and Emma, we're thinking about you. We're praying for you. Here's the scripture. You know, God bless Mikey Culbertson or whatever. You know what I mean? And it's like, so we're able to encourage them. We're now doing this with soldiers in the military. We did this recently with, uh, actually it was about a year ago, we did it with a guy in Kuwait. And what was awesome is he ended up on his military base in Kuwait, had a flag raised up in honor, and they honored our youth group, Calvary Chapel Twin Cities in Kuwait in the Middle East. And so, and then, and then we also have a guy in Afghanistan that we wrote letters to, and, and he recently messaged Sarah and said, hey, I'm going to be raising a flag on one of my missions on behalf of your youth group to recognize your youth group in one of the most dark Muslim countries in the Middle East. Incredible. And I think about, like Paul wrote to the Romans, he said, man, my prayer is that your faith would be spoken of throughout the whole world. And that is literally happening with our tiny little youth group that meets in that little room over there as we distract you guys during, with our laughing and stuff like that, is, man, we are encouraging people. We are impacting people. People are staying on the mission field, and people are being encouraged while they are serving our, if it's spiritual or uh, military-based needs. Man, we can be with people in spirit even if we can't visit them in person. Verse 5. For though I, uh, oh, I did read that, didn't I? I did read verse 5, right? Oh, yeah, there's actually a one other thing I want to mention in verse 5. Sorry. It says, rejoicing to see your good order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. 
he gives him a little shout out. He says, oh, by the way, there are these three things in verse 2 I want you to be aware of that you need to work on. And oh, by the way, in verse 5, I want to give you a shout out for these things. I mean, you guys are being good. You're standing fast in the faith. I mean, they were standing strong in the word of God, like I believe our church does as well. Verse 6, it says, as you therefore have received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in faith and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So he says, man, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What is he saying? He's saying, man, you received the, the Lord by faith. Don't change the game plan. Continue to walk with him by faith. On the day that you prayed to receive Christ, it was by faith that you trusted that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection was the satisfaction or the propitiation for your sins, and that you would enter heaven's gates by simply accepting Jesus Christ into your life. And man, if it's trusting him for provisions, obeying him in day-to-day -day life, moving where God guides you to go domestically or internationally, sharing the gospel, or investing in the people in your sphere of influence, guys, it all needs to be done by faith. Because Paul wrote there in the book of Romans, that apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. And, and the prophet Joel complements that thought by saying, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And I like at the end of verse 7, he emphasizes abounding in it, in the faith, with thanksgiving. Guys, thanksgiving is ginormous in the Christian faith. It is huge. Man, it's the pads in football, it's the cleats in soccer, it's the engine in the car, it's the weapons in the military. It's that thing that you got to have on your side. And if you don't, your Christian faith will run dry. And Paul emphasizes that also in 2 Thessalonians 5.18. He says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. If you're concerned about the will of God this morning, I can promise you one thing that if you are in a daily spirit of giving thanks to God, the scripture says you're in his will, at least for that portion of your life. There might be others that you need to work on, but man, this is the will of God that you would give thanks in all things. And I also want to emphasize it's not for all things. Notice the wording. He doesn't say, yeah, just, you know, be super thankful that your car just broke down and be super thankful that, you know, your, the parents divorced or I'm divorcing or whatever. It's like, man, no, but he says give thanks in all things. Man, because even in the worst, most depressing, dark seasons of life, there is always a reason to give thanks. This is an unknown author, but Sarah shared this quote with me. Thankfulness does not follow happiness. Happiness follows thankfulness. You want to have a blessed life? It's not going to be necessarily in your bank account or your credit union account. Man, it's not going to necessarily be in your real estate or in your relationships. It's going to be found in your gratitude. Because guess what? The stocks are going up and down. Real estate, as we know, went down a ton. And if your joy is based on that, you were depressed five or ten years ago. Man, the things of this life are going to go up and down. People are going to fail us day in and day out. But man, if you can learn to give thanks in spite of it, you will be a reflection of the joy of the Lord. And what's cool is the reason why Christians were given the name Christian 
in the early church is because when they walked around, they reminded people of Jesus. The joy that they had heard of all the stories of Jesus being so joyful. Man, the way that they reached out to people, the, the way they invested in the poor. Man, that's why they were called Christians is because their life so reflected the joy of the Lord. And I personally think that, man, uh, thankfulness is really the medicine to depression. Because with depression, and I, and, you know, and I, I know there's chemical imbalances, and I don't want to say that those aren't real. I, I truly believe there are those scenarios. Uh, but I think there's also times we just fall into depression because we're so self-centered. There's also that aspect as well. And man, because with depression, that type of depression, I should say, man, a lot of that is because, man, you're focused on, man, my bank account's so low, dang it. Or, man, I can't go out to eat like I used to. Or, man, I hate my work. Or, hey, ah, I hate this. And you're thinking about all the things you don't like about life. But man, to be able to come before the Lord in those times and give gratitude for the good things that God is doing, it truly does lift your spirits. I remember when I lived in California, I had a buddy who backstabbed me in just such a way that I was like, how can you call yourself a bro and do such a horrible thing to me? I mean, he definitely got crossed off the bromance list because, man, there was no more bromance after this. But, man, just backstab, knife in the back, twisting with salt pouring in. Just, it was a horrible experience. And I remember one morning I was doing my devotions, and it was, it was just one of those things that, like, I did not know I could be betrayed by someone who called themselves a brother in the Lord so badly. And I was, I was crying in my devotions, trying to read my Bible and just trying to get it together. And I remember I read in um, 1 Samuel 12:24. It says, Only fear the Lord and serve him in truth with all of your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. And as I finished the chapter, it is like a little girl crying. The Lord said, now you will give thanks. But Lord, my circumstances aren't good. Lord, I don't feel happy right now. Your happiness is not dependent on your circum, or I should say your joy is not dependent on your circumstances. Your joy is dependent on your gratitude. And I came before the Lord for a half hour that morning. Lord, thank you that you died for my sins. Thank you that you've risen from the dead. Thank you that you've given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. And my completion is in you, Lord. Thank you that you work all things together for good because I love you and I'm called according to your purpose. Lord, thank you there's no condemnation for the mistakes I've made in the past because I walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Lord, thank you that there's a roof over my head tonight. Thank you that I have a car that gets me to work. Thank you, Lord, that I have a job that will pay the bills and put food in my hungry belly. <laughs> Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for my pillow. Thank you for a refrigerator that, like in the old days, I don't have to pour tons of salt over all my food to keep, preserve it. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. And that day was incredible because I went from just depressed and bummed and discouraged by the, the, the scenario that I was dealing with to, man, the joy of the Lord overtook my soul. And that day I shared the gospel with three different people in the same workday. Man, the Holy Spirit just fell. And I experienced it. And it was through a spirit of gratitude. And that's why he says, abounding in it with thanksgiving in Colossians. In everything, not for everything, in every scenario, give thanks. Because this is indeed the will of God. 
Another reason that Thanksgiving is important is because God doesn't want us to be, and here's what I'll say about Calvary Chapels. We are very knowledgeable in the scriptures. In fact, our kids beat us in the Bible quiz competitions every Christmas or whenever we do that. It's impressive how much even our kids know the Bible. But yet God doesn't want us to be knowledgeable with doctrine and cold in heart toward people. But man, when you have a heart that is overtaken in a spirit of thanksgiving for the wonderful things God has done for you, you can't help but that joy and thankfulness overflow into the lives around you. And now you're finding people that you can invest in and pray for and disciple and evangelize and help out in their time of need. And now your religion is not this doctrinal duty but this delight to serve God and to minister to people around you. Thanksgiving is that difference. I would also like to ask you this morning as a rhetorical question, we talked about the statistic of spiritual prayer requests. What is the ratio of your prayers in terms of asking God for favors and thanking him for the truckload of blessings he's already provided you? May that search your heart. And may you be one that reverses the tide, that instead of, God is my genie, gimme, 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 how about I just stop and give my life to you and say, God, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. May that overtake us and be what drives our Christian faith. It'll lead to that agon, that compassion that impacts others for the sake of the gospel. Verse 8. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world and not according to Christ. So he says, hey, don't be cheated by the philosophy of man. Don't be cheated by the non-biblical messages that are trying to creep into the church and rip away the simplicity of the good news. Because what happens is, man, you start taking in the doctrines of men and the, and the philosophies in men. And what, what are their sayings? Their sayings are, man, if you're a good enough person, then God will let you in. And that, and that doesn't sound like a bad thing. Hey, we're just doing good works and, you know, whatever. But what does that turn into? It turns into, oh, man, i got to do all these good works. Oh, man, I better out, my good works better outweigh the bad works. And man, and then you get like midway through your life and then, you know, you went through the unexpected divorce and, oh my gosh, will God let me into heaven because I went through a divorce? And, and then you're a senior in the senior living community and then you're wondering like, oh my gosh, did my good works outweigh my bad works? You're cheating yourself. Don't cheat yourself out of the simplicity of the good news. The good news is that Christ died. He is the satisfaction for the sins of the world. And if you are adding requirements onto salvation, in essence, what you're doing is you're saying that Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection wasn't enough. And that is actually blasphemous because what you're saying is Jesus isn't enough. Guys, he is enough. He is the satisfaction for our sins. And man, when you can rest in, man, I am saved because God took his wrath out on his son. And now there's no merit that I, it's, it, here's the difference. The difference is like, you know, if I were to, let's say, let's say I, I gave my buddy Dan my car and I said, Dan, you know, have my car. But you know, no pressure, I just will never be able to get to work, I won't be able to pay the bills, you know, things like that. But I mean, don't feel bad. But if you don't give me some of your check, man, you're in big trouble. We're not friends anymore. Now he's like, oh man, I gotta, I gotta please Mike and I gotta, 
make Mike happy, and I got to give him part of my commission checks. And <laughs> but if I just go, Dan, no strings attached, bro. Here's my car. Now he can relax in the gift that he's been given because there's no strings attached to keep the gift that has been given. And guys, with salvation, there's no strings attached. The second you start putting strings onto salvation, you're cheating your Christian walk. And you're stressing yourself out over things that ought not to be stressed out. And that's why in Romans 8.1, like I quoted before, he says, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because the second, guys, you start walking in the condemnation of the struggles and the failures you've had in the past, indirectly what you're telling yourself, Jesus wasn't enough. I blew it. I don't know if his death and resurrection will cover me. That's condemnation. But yes, do we grieve over sin in the sense that we regret those decisions? Sure. But we don't, we don't look at our salvation any differently because of our lack of performance. Our salvation is truly and fully dependent on him. If you think or even imply anything else with guilt tripping yourself and, man, th losing sleep over thing decisions you've made in the past, you're now putting strings on and cheating yourself out of the blessing that God has provided in the simplicity of salvation. Verse 9. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus Christ is God in human form. Verse 10. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. Guys, you are complete in Jesus Christ. You don't need anything else for salvation. You don't need anything else for the power of ministry. You don't need anything else for raising kids, for marriage. You don't need anything else but Jesus Christ and his spirit alone. Guys, you are truly complete in him. There's nothing else that you need. And guys, when we're complete in him and we're not cheating ourselves in the Christian faith, man, we can live with that agon that guides and drives our life. For some of you this morning, your agon is, man, your kids. And that drive should be, man, how can I disciple my kids? How can I spiritually invest in my kids in such a way that they're going to grow and be giants for the faith? Not churchgoers, but giants, life-impacting Christians. Or, man, your agon is, man, I see new believers in the church, and I have a gift to explain the scriptures to them and to disciple them and to grow them in the faith. Others, your agon is lost souls. Man, you just hear that someone hasn't heard about Jesus. Man, your agon drives you to tell people about Jesus. Let me ask you this morning, believer, do you have an agon? Do you have a compassion to fill the needs of others with the gifts God has given you? If you're searching your heart this morning and you don't sense a drive for some kind of ministry to impact a certain group of people with your gifts, pray that the Lord would give you the agon, the agony, the compassion that leads to a life filled with action. And if you're a visitor here this morning, verse 10 just said that, man, you are complete in him. Are you here this morning and you've been trying to please God apart from grace through faith alone and Christ alone? 
man, have you been trying to attain God's pleasure over your life by being a good person or efforts or whatever it might be? If that's you and you've never received the Lord, this morning the scriptures say today is the day of salvation. And I would suggest that if you've never prayed to receive Christ, you do that today. And as I look around, I believe everyone here is a believer. But if you're not and you've never received Jesus Christ, your completion is in him and him alone. So with that, let's pray. And we'll, uh, we'll go into our final song of worship. Lord, we do just come before you, God, and we just thank you for your word, and we just thank you that there is power in the scriptures. Lord, I pray for every single believer here this morning that they would, like Paul the Apostle, who impacted the whole known world at his time because it was an agony for people's needs that drove him to ministry. Lord, may that agon drive us through the avenue of the gifts you've given us to reach people with the gospel, to impact lives for the sake of Christ. May people look at us like they did at the early church and just assume we are these little versions of Christ because of the joy we reflect and the hospitality we provide to those around us. Lord, we love you, we honor you, and we pray that it wouldn't just be with words that we acknowledge you, but with our actions and how we are the extension of your ministry here on earth. In Jesus' precious name, amen.